want to introduce you to the characters in our story this morning before Lisa comes and read the, reads the scripture to us. So at a time when Israel was united, King Solomon was the last king on the throne of the united Israel, and after his death, they split into two kingdoms. We had the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Well, at one point, the Assyrians attacked Israel, and Israel fell into oppression underneath Assyria. All of the influential people were removed from Israel and placed in exile into Assyria. About 150 years later, Judah fell to the Babylonians, who had overtaken the Assyrians. And again, all of the influential people in Judah were removed and placed into exile. So now, the Jews are in exile... There's other people living in the land. And for the timing of our scripture today, the Persians are now in control. And the Jews live dispersed and scattered throughout the Persian Empire. That's called the Diaspora. The Diaspora is where the Jews are scattered out. And they're scattered throughout the Persian Empire. Well, King Xerxes, I love his name. Xerxes, that's a good king name. King Xerxes over the Persian Empire found a beautiful young woman that he decided he wanted to make his next queen. The prior queen had fallen out of favor, and and we have this new queen. That queen is Esther. Under the guidance of her cousin Mordecai, Esther does not reveal that she is a Jew in the court. King Xerxes does not know. No one in the court knows that she is a Jew. Some things happen with Mordecai in that he angers somebody he probably shouldn't have gotten crossways with because Mordecai refuses to kneel down to this guy because he's a Jew, he's not going to kneel down to anybody but God, and he angers this man, this man's name is Haman. And what Haman does is he convinces the king to write an edict, to write into law that on a particular day at a particular time, all the Persians have the right to kill the Jews. So all the Jews are now, their lives are now threatened. What Mordecai does is he puts on sackcloth and he puts ashes on his head and on his body. Those are indications of mourning. To wear sackcloth and have ashes on your head is a sign of ritual mourning. And he goes to the gate there at the palace. He stays in contact with Esther while she's living in the palace. And he goes to the gate and through a series of messages sent through people in between Mordecai informs Esther of what's been going on, the situation with the Jews now in the Persian Empire, and he tells her it's time to act. Lisa's going to read for us that interaction between Mordecai and Esther. Thank you, Lisa. Mordecai says to Esther, If you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. He says to Esther, If you don't do this, somebody else will raise up and do it, but you're not going to survive, and neither is your family going to survive. Just because you're in the palace doesn't mean that you're going to live this out. And because you are in the palace, you have the power to save more people than if this comes from somewhere else. Don't keep silent. 
when do we keep silent? When do we see someone else who's being exploited, oppressed, or hurt, and we say nothing? When do we not speak up? The movie Hidden Figures came out a couple of years ago. I really enjoy this movie. Anything with NASA, I'm going to enjoy the movie. I wanted to go see this movie because it was about strong, intelligent women. That's why I wanted to go see this movie. But there is an underlying current in this movie that I really wasn't expecting until I got there. These are all African-American women, smart, intelligent African-American women in the 1960s working at NASA. These women were working against the racial divide and the unrest that was happening in this country. One of the three women profiled in this movie is Dorothy Vaughn. I gotta love Dorothy Vaughn. Dorothy Vaughn was raised by a father who taught her mechanical things. She could fix cars. She could fix about anything. And she worked with a group of women and they were in charge of doing all the mathematics that comes along with the engineers would come up with these formulas and the women would run the mathematics. And they would have to do all the calculations for the trajectories, for the landings, for all this stuff nobody had ever had to figure out before, and the women were doing it. Dorothy Vaughn realized that once that big IBM mainframe was installed, that all those math jobs were going to go away. And she knew it. She was a visionary. She was smart, she was intelligent, she was a visionary. She taught herself how to program the IBM mainframe. And then she took it upon herself to teach the other women in her group, how to do that programming. You see, the supervisor in their area had disappeared a few years before. We're not really told what happened to the prior supervisor. And Dorothy had taken on that responsibility without the title and without the pay. But she was teaching these other women how to program this IBM. Well, the woman comes down to give her an assignment, and she says to Dorothy, now you're going to be the programmer of the IBM. You need to report over there. And Dorothy says, no, because it can't be done by one person. And the woman says, but we need you over there. And she said, let me take my girls with me. They're trained. They know they can do the work. So then the assignment comes down. It's Dorothy and dozens of women to go over to a new area to program the IBM. Dorothy not only thought ahead, she taught others. She knew her job was at risk. She knew other women's jobs were going to be at risk. And when the opportunity came for her to go, she spoke up. And she said, we're all going together. Dorothy was not silent. Dorothy Vaughn goes on to be the first African-American supervisor at NASA. Not the first woman African-American supervisor at NASA, the first African-American supervisor at NASA. She spoke up and protected other women in a minority race who were at risk. She was not silent. Mordecai says to Esther, who knows, maybe you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Not only did Mordecai encourage Esther to speak up, he went so far as to imply that God put her in the palace because this was coming. She was a woman. 
She was a Jew. She was an outcast. She was an untouchable. But yet she had been placed in a position where she could save her family and all of the other Jews. And Mordecai implies that God put her there for that moment. We have a phrase for this in Christian theology. It's called divine providence. Divine providence is God's maintenance, guidance, and continuing involvement with creation and humans as a means for carrying out divine purposes in history. Divine providence is God's continuing action by which all creation is preserved, supported, and governed by God's purposes and plans for human history and human lives. I want to point out to what it is to me that those two sentences mean in the most important phrases. God's continuing involvement. God's continuing action. Divine providence allows for free will. Divine providence allows for us to make choices about what role we are going to play. But we recognize that God is influencing, guiding, directing, and encouraging us to do certain things in order to bring about God's purposes and plans. Well, what are God's purposes and plans in human life and human history? It's always safe to assume that God's purpose is love. It's always safe to assume that God loves all people because God loves all that God created. It's also safe to assume that God's plan is the full redemption of all of creation. Because God loves all that God created, God wants to be in deep, loving, abiding relationships with all people whom God created. So it's always safe to assume that God's continuing involvement and continuing action with creation and with human beings is to bring about love and to bring about redemption. There are so many illustrations of divine providence in Scripture that I could turn to, but we're in the season of Advent, so why not go to Mary and to Joseph? As we talked about this morning, the angel came to Mary and said, you are going to become a mother, and the baby is going to be of God. Mary had a choice. She could have said no. She could have said, thank you, no, not me. But God's continuing involvement encouraged her to accept the responsibility humbly and to praise God for choosing her. God came to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, it's okay. Go ahead and take Mary as your wife. Everything's going to be fine. I am involved. It's okay. Joseph had a choice to make. Joseph could have said no. He had every right to say no to this situation. But he chose to move forward with being the husband of Mary and raising Mary's child as his own. We call that divine providence. God's continuing involvement. God's continuing involvement to bring love and grace to bear in this world through a baby born to Mary. Every day you have choices to make. All of us have choices that we make every day, depending on our jobs, where we are in school, where we live, our communities, our neighbors, our affinity groups, hospitals. All of us are placed into different scenarios in our lives where we can make choices. 
choices to influence those around us, choices to bring love and grace and mercy into the lives of others who are in our sphere of influence. It's God's continuing involvement, God's continuing action that guides and directs us to bring love and grace into the lives of those who are around us. That's what, es- that's what Mordecai was telling Esther, and that's what God tells us. Our God continues to be active. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. We lit a candle for peace. Today we remember peace, and we remember peace in a lot of different ways. In the scripture that Daryl and Lisa read earlier, it talks about this promise of God's peace where the lion and the lamb will lie together and the child can put his hand over the snake's hole. That's a a level of peace where people are going to put down their swords and their spears and have plowshares. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's a peace where all the nations will come to the Lord. But there's another kind of peace that comes along with this Advent wreath. And that's the peace that we bring. The peace that we bring as peacemakers. The peace that we bring as a part of God's kingdom here on earth. There is a lot of hurt in this world. We have people living on the streets and living in shelters. We have veterans who are not receiving the benefits and the help that they need. We have poverty, we have disease, we have asylum seekers, we have rioters, we have shootings. There's all kinds of hurt in this world. And yet I find myself getting frustrated. I find myself getting frustrated with with other people who are helping this group of people over here, but not helping the group that I favor the group that that I would put first on the list of who needs to be helped. And and, and I get frustrated when I see some people helping somebody. I say, well, you know what? That need isn't all that great. This need is, is greater over here. And a friend of mine told me this week something that has caused me to rethink all of that. We know that God places in within us gifts and talents, that that unique combination is what we are supposed to be. We know that that scripture tells us that. God also gives us passions, compassions, and empathies in a unique combination in order to help the needs in the world. Stop and think about it. One person cannot fix all of the hurt in the world, yet if everybody in the world agreed this is the only need we're going to help, who does it leave out? So rather than my being frustrated with someone else for supporting a group that maybe I wouldn't put that high on the list or maybe I wouldn't support at all, instead I should say, well, praise God that God gave them that compassion, that passion, and that empathy. Praise God that they are helping this person so I can help here. Am I making sense with what I'm saying there? Spread the love. In this church in 2018, we have had 12 unique and different missions of the month. For some people, Patriot Paws and the Nevada Volunteer Fire Department rings the strongest chord within their hearts. For other people, maybe it's Emily's place and Jonathan's place when we're talking about domestic violence, and and that, that pulls us in. For other people, it could be the teachers, the cancer patients, the elderly living in nursing homes, and that's that's where you feel drawn. 
And yet I have never heard a single person in this church say to somebody else, why are you supporting Patriot Paws more than you're supporting Jonathan's Place? I've never heard anybody say that, and I don't think anybody ever would in this space. Yet why is it that you and I will get angry at somebody outside this place for supporting somebody in need? That doesn't make any sense. Instead, we can say, praise be to God, thank you, Jesus, that this person feels compassion for this group because there is just too much hurt for me to do it all, for you to do it all. So instead of saying, choose my stuff over your stuff, we can say, thank you. Thank you for loving that person in need. That's the peace I think this candle on the wreath is symbolizing. A peace where we can spread the love, as Bryn said. A peace where we can say, yeah, let's do this together. Let's be the hands and feet and voices of God that say, we're going to take care. We're going to care for those in need. I'm not going to get mad at you. You're not going to get mad at me. We're going to say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. In the story of Esther and Mordecai, we have a woman in a place where she can make a difference. We have a woman who has been placed there by God to save the Jews. She does. She goes before the king. She pleads her case. And the lives of all of the Jews living in the Persian Empire are spared. She didn't remain silent. She spoke up. And she acted. That divine influence, that divine providence moved her, gave her the strength, gave her the ability and protected her when she needed to go, when she could no longer be silent. What are the passions and compassions and empathies that God has placed within your heart? They may be different from mine, and that's great. Thank God for that. Out of those passions, compassions, and empathies, how is God calling you to speak up? Where has God placed you in this world? With the neighbors who live near you or the other people at work or the other people in your classroom or the people in this church, in your quilting groups, at the chamber, wherever those affinities take us. Who has God placed in our lives and asked us to be God's hands and feet and voices to bring love and grace and peace. Where is God saying, speak up? Where is God saying, act? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.